Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Sean Donnan, the FT's World News Editor. I'm standing in for Gideon Ruckman this week. He's in Davos with our team there. On the show this week, we look at Barack Obama's second term and what his foreign policy priorities are likely to be. In the studio with me is Rula Halaf, the FT's Middle East Editor. And joining me down the line from Washington is FT Bureau Chief Richard McGregor and our diplomatic correspondent, Jeff Dyer. Richard, why don't we start with you? It often seems from afar like foreign policy is a secondary priority for the Obama administration. In the first term, we saw big moves on health care. We've seen the big debate over the budget and so on in, in recent weeks. How does it look from inside the Beltway? And as you look forward to the second term, how does foreign policy feature? Well, I think it remains, if not a second-order issue, then not the priority of the administration. It's still very, very domestically focused, and foreign policy is still very domestically calibrated. I mean, it's often said that in, in a president's second term, with the you know a large amount of one's domestic agenda either done or they've done all they can do because of the that the way their power dissipates on the domestic stage uh, in their second term, that they move more naturally, more enthusiastically onto the foreign stage, where, of course, by this time they have lots of friends. But Mr. Obama's inauguration speech gave no indication of that at all. It was very home-centered. And indeed, as you said, there has been a big uh, focus on the budget in the first term, and that's going to be the big focus once again for the next three months, six months, and a whole lot of other local issues as well. So it is not consciously a first-order issue at the moment. And yet there's a big wide world out there and President Obama can't escape that. So, Jeff, when you're pondering that second term foreign policy agenda, which is very much your focus there in Washington, what do you think the key points are going to be, the, the key areas of attack? Top of the agenda the next few months will obviously be Iran. The administration is going to try and revive the talks they're having with the Iranian government last year about Iran's nuclear program. And there is a sense that you know, either this year or next year, you're really going to reach the crunch point or Mr. Obama's going to have to decide whether he's going to really push through the diplomatic track or whether he's going to have to bite the bullet of the war and, uh, and launch a military strike. That is going to be the big issue of the first couple of years of the second term. And even if he wants to concentrate solely on domestic issues, he's going to find that a huge amount of his time is taken up by foreign policy because of things like Iran. One of the things people often talk about in terms of a second term of a U.S. presidency is the great dream that many presidents have of bringing peace to the Middle East. We've also had the Israeli election this week. Rula, how does the result there and how does what we've seen out of Washington in recent weeks bode for peace in the Middle East, particularly between Israel and the Palestinians? I think that the results were probably better than people were expecting and given that it's the the supposed shift to the right wing wasn't that much there. I think Israel is still pretty much divided down the middle between the center left and the right wing. And I think there'll be some relief in Washington at that. Having said that, I don't think that with Benjamin Netanyahu remaining as, as prime minister, and he will be prime minister, the administration has a lot of interest right now in pushing 
negotiating for Middle East peace. This is what every administration in its second term is expected to do. This is what we had with Clinton in particular, but also with George W. Bush to a certain extent. But I think that the Obama administration or President Obama did try in his first term. It was one of the first things he attempted. And he hit the block very quickly. And I don't think that the situation on the ground and the politics in Israel and amongst the Palestinians provide any kind of encouragement. So I don't really see why, although there's a lot of pressure from the Arab world and from Europe, I don't see why he would go down that path. How does it look from Washington, Jeff? I think that's absolutely right. I and mean, I think one of the, the upshots of this election is the suggestion that maybe, although Netanyahu will form the next government, that it might not be a very durable government. It's entirely possible you have another election within a year or so, and that maybe he might end up losing that one. So if you're in the White House, you might be thinking to yourself, well, we'll do this in the second term, but we won't do it immediately. We'll wait to see how things play out in Israeli politics, and maybe there'll be a different prime minister in Israel in two years' time. I think the other issue from the election is that it weakens the sort of pressure that Mr. Netanyahu can exert over the Iran issue. He's been you know, one who's been pushing Obama to be much more hawkish, trying to close the space for a, a deal with the Iranians that would involve Iran having some sort of ability to enrich uranium. The fact that he's in a weaker position now at home that lessens the leverage he has in the Iranian talks over Mr. Obama. Richard, I mean, one of the features we're going to get in the second administration is getting used to a very different Secretary of State. Hillary Rodham Clinton was such a strong figure in the first administration. John Kerry now going through the confirmation hearings, no major blocks expected there. Should we expect a big difference from a John Kerry Secretary of Stateship? It's hard to know. Hillary Clinton was on the global stage a rock star as Secretary of State. But when you look back over her record, it's hard to know what she achieved uh, herself in terms of her personal political aims and what the signature Obama foreign policy is in any case, uh, apart from you know cleaning up some of the mess of their predecessors, number one, and setting a new course uh, for the country's foreign policy. You know, this is not only Mr. Obama's second term and swan song, it's also John Kerry's swan song. This will be the last major office he holds in public life. Certainly the Obama administration, I think, is acutely aware it doesn't have any large initiatives from its first term. It doesn't have any large social initiatives, if you like. For example, George W. Bush, his administration, I think, was at $12 billion, a very large amount of money looking at AIDS in Africa. The Obama administration has looked at that initiative and they feel they have done nothing of that dimension themselves. So... I think we'll see how John Kerry wants to go out. I'm sure he's got his legacy in mind, and it will not be simply writing instructions from Mr. Obama. Now, we've gotten this far without mentioning the words Iraq or Afghanistan, which is interesting in itself. Jeff, walk us through what's going to happen over presumably the first half of the second term in terms of the withdrawal from Afghanistan by the end of 2014, but also how that legacy of Iraq and Afghanistan is going to shadow policy in the second term. The immediate situation is the following. The NATO mission ends in 2014, and the U.S. and Afghanistan are now starting to think through what sort of presence the U.S. will have in Afghanistan after 2014. And you're now, it looks like, starting to get into a quite interesting debate in Washington where some people in the military want to have a relatively large presence in the country after 2014 so they can continue doing counterterrorism operations against al-Qaeda. It seems like the White House wants to keep it very, very small. They want to have a very light footprint want to do that for budgetary reasons, they want to do that because they think it's something of a fool's errand to keep a large military presence there, and because they're relatively confident they don't need too many people there to keep after al-Qaeda operatives that are still operating around Afghanistan and Pakistan. But that could turn out into a big political fight 
between the White House and the Pentagon over what kind of force level they have. Then going forward, the White House does seem to think, feel quite confident that they can get away with a relatively small presence. It would be a huge political blow if some sort of terrorist attack was launched from Afghanistan after the U.S. had pulled out a lot of its troops. But that is, a, in a sense, a big political vulnerability that they will face is if Al-Qaeda war is able to reconstitute itself in some way that was able to launch an attack outside of the region that threatened American interests. That would be a, a huge political issue, just as we saw with the attack on the consulate in Benghazi. Rilla? Yes, I think that Jeff is making a very good point. But I think you also have to look beyond Iraq and Afghanistan, and particularly at Syria. I think Syria will be a big headache for the administration this year. And it's it's the type of crisis that Washington has tried not to deal with aggressively or directly, preferring in some ways to let the region handle it. And also what we can see more and more is Britain and France taking the lead on it. The expectation, at least here in London, is that the Obama administration will continue to maintain a sort of backstage role. But I think Syria could provide some surprises and things could accelerate fairly rapidly. And so I think that's one of one of the areas that you need to watch and where the U.S. may yet have to take a more engaged approach. And we've seen that U.S. reluctance to get engaged in the Libya operation and also in Mali, where the French are leading the operation on the ground against these al-Qaeda-linked militants, uh, some of which flowed through into into Algeria and so on. That non-intervention position, is that something that's going to hold through the second term, Jeff? I think the first term, Sir Obama pretty much set up his stall, and he's very cautious about military presence of the U.S. troops in places, and that's been one of his abiding themes. I think that'll be even more underlined with John Kerry at the State Department and Chuck Hagel at the Pentagon. But as Rilla said, there are all these issues where whether they like it or not, the U.S. at risk getting sucked in. There's a big chance that it will have to get involved in some way in Syria, as there is this conflict in Mali. There are all these issues where... The U.S. finds that even if it wants to stay out, it can't really, when events really start to spin out of control. So I think while they're philosophically reluctant, the reality is that we're going to have to get more involved in quite a few of those issues. Now, we've gotten this far without mentioning the other key word in U.S. foreign policy, and of course is China, the great emerging rival. Richard, are we going to see any different approach towards policy in China in the second term? Well, isn't that always the case? The Obama administration, in theory, has pivoted to Asia, but we only managed to get there towards the end of our conversation. I think they feel much the same way. Well, I think in terms of surprises, it's not really a surprise, but it'd be a shock to the system, is the conflict between Japan and China. Now, in recent days, China has uh, rhetorically retreated. I think both sides are trying to uh, find a way to talk about these disputed islands through dialogue rather than through escalating diplomatic and uh, military moves. And I think that's a big flashpoint. So I think the Obama administration, in fact, the U.S. bureaucracy across the board is is very focused on China. And I think they have such uh, a vast network of engagements that it forces them to sit across the table and talk to each other in many, many different ways, which provides some stability to the relationship long term, though. I think they remain on a kind of strategic collision course. I don't expect we're going to reach that point uh, very quickly, but certainly the Japan-China issue is one that America is looking at very nervously. Okay, let's wrap this up and go around the table and across the Atlantic, and I'm going to do a pop quiz to each of you. Uh, Rula, the big foreign policy flashpoint for the second term will be? 
Well, being the Middle East, that I can guarantee. But uh, exactly where, really? I mean, the potential is, it's vast. It could, it could be anywhere. Jeff? Well, I think Richard hit the nail on the head. Uh, the, the real surprise one could actually be some sort of conflict between Japan and China that the U.S. would get sucked into. The second biggest economy in the world, the third biggest economy in the world, I mean, there'd be huge implications, even if it was just a skirmish. That's the one that the real risk that people are not maybe paying as much attention to as they should. Richard, Jeff stole your thunder. I still think, I mean, that's a possibility, but I'm afraid the old reliable saw, the Middle East, is probably where it's likely to come. My thanks to Richard McGregor and Jeff Dyer in Washington and Rula Halaf here in London. Till next week, I'm Sean Donnan. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.